Happy Monday, one and all. It is June 20th, 2022, and this is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. I am your host, Kevin McDonald, an executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. We hope you had a wonderful weekend. We're able to get out and enjoy all that New Mexico has to offer. We know we would. We did the same, and we've got plenty of great content from our most recent episode and our social media channels to bring you in the podcast here on this Monday. So let's get right into it. We're going to start off with our most recent line panel, a reminder there. We had Julianne Grimm, editor and publisher of the Santa Fe Reporter. Also, Rebecca Latham, CEO of Girl Scouts of New Mexico and former cabinet secretary under Governor Susana Martinez and Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group PR. No doubt you've been following the headlines about Otero County, uh, where the uh, county commission there has uh, laid down a gauntlet over certifying the vote from the primary election, which led to the Secretary of State, Maggie Toulouse-Oliver, reaching out to first the Supreme Court of New Mexico to try to force the commission (coughs) to do that, as well as reaching out to the Attorney General about possible criminal charges for basically dereliction of duty on that behalf of the commissioners. We are recording this podcast on Friday, and of course we record the line on Thursday, so some things may have changed between uh, when you're hearing this and when we recorded it, we know that the Otero County Commission has an emergency meeting scheduled for Friday afternoon to maybe certify or maybe dig in their heels deeper. We will continue to stay on this story, but we wanted to talk about that uh, in what we know as of Friday and this chess match that is going on and is really gathering national attention as well. So we're going to do that with the line opinion panel as well as wrap up some Results from the primary election we didn't get a chance to last week, and these are some of the state uh, legislative races, state house races. So here is host Gene Grant and the line opinion panel. Welcome back to our line opinion panelists. Last week we reacted to the biggest state races in the primary election, but we want to focus on some of the influential local outcomes today. Otero County has inserted itself into the election discussion again, too, prompting a lawsuit from the Secretary of State's office. We'll touch on that in just a minute here. But let's start with some of the contested races in the State House. Two of three Democratic state lawmakers in local contested primaries prevailed. The only one who didn't is State Rep. Roger Montoya and Velarde. Uh, former State Rep. Joseph Sanchez won the nomination in District 40. Mr. Sanchez got some support from outgoing House Speaker Brian Egolf who vocally opposed Mr. Montoya leading up to the election. Julianne, how did that relationship sour? Something seemed to have gone off the track here a little bit. You know, Gene, I'm not sure that I have enough insight into, you know, kind of both sides of that relationship souring mm-hmm. um, to, to really say. Fair enough. But I think from my conversations with, with Roger Montoya, I would say that he was really unwilling to play the little party games. If he felt like he needed to vote for or against something, he did that. If he mm-hmm. felt like he needed to speak out, um, you know, if there was a small thing that he just couldn't go along with, that's why he got crossways with Planned Parenthood. Um, so I think that whole, you know, what's the truth of the matter? You're not really going to know unless you are either one of those gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think it's noteworthy also about this race. You know, this district is the big geographical district 
It's lots of Colfax County and Moore County, small pieces of real Reba and, and San Miguel County. Um, and so of course these voters were under duress, um, mm. I think is a, a gentle way to say it. Mm -hmm. um, but this was one of the most high turnout legislative races we saw in New Mexico during the primary. Um, there were nearly 5,000 votes. And while that doesn't seem like an astounding number of votes, there were other legislative contested races that where there were just over a thousand votes. Right. Um, so, you know, you have Sanchez winning by about 700 votes, 687 votes. Um, and when you think about the scope of democracy, um, you know, that really shows you that every person who hits the polling place matters. Interesting points there. Uh, Rebecca, former New Mexico GOP chairman and oil man Harvey Yates backed several moderate Democrats in races against more progressive Democrat candidates, rather. Uh, of eight candidates receiving money from Mr. Yates backed groups, only three won. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm hesitating to say only three. I mean, three won, that's no, not an insignificant number. But was it worth it for Mr. Yates if you were sitting in his shoes? I think so. I mean, okay. in, in recent years, we've seen big shifts um, from uh, Republican incumbents in the House ousted by very progressive Democratic um, uh, folks. And if you're, it's that like, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? You know, if you're going to try to shift the legislature back, even to get it back to just moderate, mm -hmm. then you got to just start investing one seat at a time. I think it's interesting too that he's not the only one that invested. That there were that that Representative Lundstrom also invested in yes, uh, and some of these other and some of these other folks. Um, for for folks for people like me who are who, like right in the middle, um, I, I I love it. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, lo I I don't like extremes. Period. And we saw how um, the extreme for for Representative Dow did not work out in the in the gubernatorial primary. Mm -hmm. I, I just don't like extremes. I want people who can work together. And so this, I think, for me personally, is a step in the right direction. Rebecca, let me stay with you. I'm so glad you mentioned Ms. Lundstrom in the, the kind of money she doled out. Uh, Five thousand to Mr. Sanchez, three thousand to Ms. Martinez, and well as two grand uh, to Roy Ball. I mean, that's money talks around here what, what was behind all that well not only does money talk like she talks like did you see that she said that the reason she invested in those other candidates was because she was ticked off that that, that these three these races that that, that these the that these uh, incumbents had not worked with her on the hydrogen belt all and right. so she she put ten thousand dollars into races because she was it was like spite spike money right so that, that i mean that is wow like that it is kind of a wow it really is I mean, i've never heard of really i've never i'm sure it's happened but this level of, of support tom when i when you think about this other legislators supporting it actually committee chairman as, as well i mean this is not some backbench person i mean she has a lot of influence I mean, you know overall what you're hearing from mr yates and what we just talked about what do you make of this all this money sort of floating in and the results we're seeing here well, you know, the, the money flowing in, uh, you know, I think speaks to, you know, people who want to bring the conversation back to the middle. Uh, New Mexico is a moderate state. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, lately it seems as if New Mexico has been going to the extremes on either side. And, you know, the national narratives that we saw play out with respect to Roe v. Wade, as well as with the mass shootings, really called out the extremes in both parties, mm -hmm. uh, the progressives and uh, the, you know, far right uh, Trumpers. 
and stuff. And so you had both of those who really kind of you know dominated the turnout and got their respective candidates uh, you know elected. And I think we'll see in November whether or not that was a wise political move or a good emotional move for the different folks because. Uh, you know, when you have so many people clamoring for to get that middle conversation, it really gives a lot of uh, a lot more benefit of the of the doubt to the moderate. Mm. And so now the big question is, is, you know, are the progressives and the Trumpers going to really focus on, you know, their own base, which, of course, they have to get their base out, or are they really going to try and reach towards the middle? And then what credibility do they have in those particular cases? Mm-hmm. So, you know, even, you know, was was Yates successful? Yeah, I mean, you know, with with, with Rebecca's uh, you know thoughts, you bet. You know, it was you know you got to do one of the one two three uh, at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, were the progressives successful? Absolutely. You know, the moderates got mauled, as Joe Monahan said. Mm-hmm. So you know, you really have the two extremes, which really carried the night as far as the narrative goes. Interesting point there. Um, Julie, another developing headline, of course, I mentioned out of the primary is happening in Otero County. Tuesday, the Secretary of State's office filed a lawsuit against the county board after the commissioners there, three of them, refused to certify last week's results. And on Wednesday this week, the state Supreme Court ordered the commissioners to certify. How much damage does it do to the perception of an open democracy in this state when you have our, uh, you know, representatives on national television shows on Wednesday night, you know, talking about this? I don't know that um, everybody in New Mexico would like to say Otero County represents our values or that they Fair are point. a marker of um, how successful our democracy or how authentic and or, and how much uh, integrity our election process has. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that a lot of people in New Mexico have even been to Otero County. <laughs> um, but I, I think certainly it's, you know, it's not great for New Mexico to have um, the national press pay attention to this sort of, you know, backward thing that happened. Um, there again, I think it's a it's a hat tip to Secretary of State Toulouse Oliver, who has had to really you know, navigate through all of this uh, questioning about the integrity of the election process. You know, I was a reporter when New Mexico went back to paper ballots and Mm -hmm. it was like this huge uh, deal, you know, when the hanging chads were happening in Florida, we were talking about how great our paper ballots were in New Mexico. So now it's 2022, we're arguing about whether there's a conspiracy with the voting machines, but I think it's really important to note that we still do have a verifiable audit um, and that, you know, this is one county out of 33, and this is a county where one of the three county commissioners is really on a crusade to be recognized as an extremist. And um, Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Rebecca, just got a couple, a minute and a half here. I want to get both you and Tom in real quick on your thoughts on the Sotero County deal. I mean, anybody can just say, any commissioners can say at any point, I just don't believe in my heart these machines are, are you know, doing the right thing. I'm always waiting, I'm waiting for someone to prove a point here about these machines. But is there a point to be made by distrusting these machines? What's being proven here? I think there. I think there's probably just they're still trying this. The same. You discredit something today, so that you can still go back to the 2020 general presidential election. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what's interesting to me is that that Otero County is one of the one of the flips where um, I, I believe that the more conservative candidate won by a very narrow margin, which would make me think that the Otero County board would be quick to act. 
uh, and certify the election and say, okay, now the more conservative Trump guy, now he's in. But they're not doing that, so that's I'm still perplexed. Interesting point there. I had not thought about that angle. That's interesting. Tom, real quick, your thoughts on Otero County. I mean, again, forget the black eye for New Mexico. That's, you know, who cares about that? Julianne sort of explained that. But for the county, people in the county themselves, how are they supposed to feel about this, that their vote suddenly doesn't count, literally, as far as their commission's concerned? Yeah, well, and also the commission is going against the recommendation of the county clerk, who this is this is the county clerk's business That's is right. certifying, making sure that it's a fair election. So it really kind of raises the narrative that we've all been talking about is how do we reestablish trust uh, uh, in the electoral process? And uh, that's not going to be solved uh, in the short term. That's a long term play. Mm -hmm. Well, hopefully the Secretary of State, she won't have to keep going through the rounds of television. Amazing. Thank you to our line of opinion panelists for that insight. We'll meet back here at the virtual roundtable in less than 10 minutes to talk about through the potential progress on Capitol Hill when it comes to legislation on guns. But first, the impact of wildfires on wildlife. For more than 20 years, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and partner agencies have reintroduced Mexican wolves into the United States landscape. This year, the black fire ignited in the Gila National Forest during denning season and it's impacting four wolf dens there maggie dwyer is deputy mexican wolf recovery coordinator with the service this week she talks with our land uh, with our land executive producer laura pascas about the mexican wolf and their recovery effort so much talk about gun control after some recent tragedies both in buffalo and at rob elementary school in uvalde texas uh, we see the demand for changes every time there's one of these mass shootings, which is far, far too often. Uh, the difference this time seems to be an apparent bipartisan agreement on some legislation, some modest steps around gun control. And our very own New Mexico U.S. Senator Martin Heinrich was part of the group that worked out this legislation that will now be voted on. But again, it was created in a bipartisan fashion, so the hope is that it would have a good chance of passing. And so we wanted to talk to the line opinion panelists about all of that as well and would love to hear what you have to say about some of these measures, which include uh, some enhanced background checks, especially for those under uh, 21, uh, additional money for these enhanced protection orders or red flag laws, which New Mexico is one of about 20 states that have those on the books, although not being used very much. So lots to get into here. You can reach out with your thoughts on any of our social media channels, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, just search for New Mexico in focus, or you can leave us an audio message here in the podcast as well. But let's jump right into it with the line opinion panel and our host, Gene Grant. After a string of mass shootings in our country, a group of bipartisan U.S. Senators say they've reached an agreement on several items related to gun control. The group includes 10 Republicans and 10 Democrats, among them Senator Martin Heinrich from right here in New Mexico. Let's bring our line opinion panel back for one final discussion. We'll get to the specifics in just a moment, but let's start with a wide brush. Tom, how encouraging is this step? Should we be excited early? I mean, you've been around politics a long time. This thing has a long way to go. There's a lot of pushback out there as well. How excited should we be about it? Well, um, you know, I think that it, it's heading in the right direction. Those mm -hmm. who want to see some kind of reform actually take place. Is it substantial? No, there, there are folks on both sides of the, of the issue that are really not happy 
uh, you know, in, unless their extreme issues are included. But here's what I do like mm -hmm. is uh, Senator Martin Heinrich is uh, involved and he's a part of the decision group. And uh, he's kind of like that unicorn, for lack of a better term. He's mm -hmm. an avid hunter. He's a party, you know, New Mexico senior uh, senior uh, senator. And uh, he gets the issue uh, from all sides. And so the fact that he's involved uh, is good for New Mexico. But I also think it's good for the conversation as a whole. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Rebecca, how important was it to hear from Senator Mitch McConnell on Sunday? who said he is signaling a tentative support for the deal. How, how does that goose things along here? How important is that? Um, I, I think it's important, but, it, but, but to me it was like more importantly, it was surprising. Um, I, I would not have guessed that he would have come out already in, in support of mm -hmm. um, kind of this bipartisan because that's just not his jam mm -hmm. typically. Yep. Though it's like, it's what America wants, but that's not who he is. Mm -hmm. Um, I have been asking my husband, you know, like as we do, we, when you don't understand something, you ask, you're supposed to get the other opinion. So I asked my husband because he is an avid gun uh, enthusiast. Mm -hmm. And I said, I, you would think that the good guys would be at the front of the line, at the front of the charge, figuring out how to get the bad guy, get the guns away from the bad guys, because it's given them all a bad name. So right. I so I asked my husband, like, why what is why aren't they doing more? Why are they fighting gun control, common sense gun control? And and he actually came up with solutions that I was not familiar with with regards to um, the why why is it that we that people are fighting so hard to keep assault rifles as hunting rifles right. because an assault rifle will actually obliterate anything and so if it was for hunting that's that's not what they would want and so I, I think like there's a lot more that could be done uh, a lot more that we can do but for right now it is something and like good for McConnell for stepping out and saying you know that that he he's in favor of some of this bipartisan legislation. Interesting point there. It's not his jam to come out early in the process. It's very interesting that you point that out. Hey, Julianne, uh, legislation, of course, hasn't been formally drafted yet. That's a few weeks off. But that group of senators says the agreement contains red flag provisions and most importantly, funding measures for those states that do have. And we are among one of them, as you have well reported at the Senate Reporter. Uh, it's on the books in New Mexico. Is money really what's been holding us back on this idea? Or we're still philosophically in a real scrum when it comes to this idea of taking guns away from people that might be a, a danger to themselves and others. I mean, I think we have, uh, as New Mexicans, as Americans, we've asked a lot of our court system and of our law enforcement professionals, and um, nobody wants to do it. Mm -hmm. the, you know, we we have not reported on this lately in in Santa Fe, but when the law was was passed, we talked to our local agencies and you know, it was described as this very cumbersome and difficult process. And, um, you know, a lot of times, like I think with this congressional, you know, the, the measure that the Senate is supposed to hear, the devil is in the details. You know, like you mentioned, we haven't seen the actual language of the proposal. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I just think when I take a a moment to talk a little bit about language mm -hmm. you know um both kind of sides or or all the many sides of this debate about gun safety 
have like their preferred terms that they use that they think sort of load the discussion one way or another. And I just want to point out that the Associated Press has long had a pretty clear piece of guidance about this, which mm -hmm. is that, you know, all weapons are assault weapons. That's the purpose of a weapon to assault someone. And so really what we're talking about here are semi-automatic rifles, the ARs and the AKs that were once prohibited in the United States for a short period of time. Those laws then, you know, sunsetted and Congress has been completely unwilling to regulate them and they are incredibly popular and they are not useful for hunting, but they are really useful for killing other human beings. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I do think that just the way we define all these terms and the words that we use are important. Wanted to throw that out. I, I appreciate that. Absolutely. They're important. Language is everything. Hey, Tom, the enforcement of these red flag laws, funding or not, could also be a sticking point in some cases. You might recall, and I'm sure you do, back when this passed in 2020, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham urged sheriffs who were unwilling to enforce it to resign. And some sheriffs in Colorado have also refused. How can we avoid that from happening across the country? I, I could see a movement if this started to get some traction. This red, I could see other sheriffs right across the country doing the same thing and really gumming this whole thing up. One of the one of the things, one of the key reasons that I keep hearing about why you know there are entities that don't want to uh, get into the enforcement is because they don't have the money. Uh, mm -hmm. The budget is is low. So you know you tie a hefty amount of money behind it uh, and some other strings, and perhaps that will move them. You know I think that the uh, the red flag laws is one aspect which is really strong. I also think that the straw purchasing inclusion as far as this proposal, which means that person A can't afford a gun, so they hire so they ask person B to buy the gun That's for right. them. That's that right. would be illegal uh, if if it were included in the legislation and legislation passed. So I think the red flag laws and a couple of the other elements of what's being discussed generally are good, but you have to really kind of put that money behind it, I think, in order to you know take that argument anyway away from uh, different entities who use that as a reason not to enforce the red flag laws. Mm -hmm. You know, Rebecca, the deal, of course, got a ways to go here, but the deal still leaves out measures gun advocates have been pushing for for a long time, does not require background checks for all gun sales, doesn't raise the minimum age to buy a gun, that's a big one doesn't ban assault weapons like the AR-15, as Julianne just mentioned. And, you know, Senator Heinrich says compromise is necessary in this case. Is the public ready for compromise here? Oh, I, I, think, I think the public is way beyond ready for compromise. Mm -hmm. I would hope, I, you know, I think one of, the, one of the statements that I read that came from uh, the House GOP spokesperson or, you know, saying that, I think it's this, this sticking point of like, well, we are wary of passing any laws that that like that would um, that would infringe on rights when when it, this wouldn't have stopped, you know, the shooting in Buffalo. It wouldn't have stopped the shooting in Uvalde. It would sh it wouldn't mm -hmm. have prevented these shootings. But they're speaking specifically to mass shootings, right? And and not acknowledging that a shooting doesn't have to be mass to be horrific. Thank you. And there are, you know, with those red flag laws, especially with that boyfriend loophole, we see right. it in New Mexico yep. so often that one person or to or, or two or a family, they're they're killed because we can't enforce that because of the boyfriend loophole, or we're not enforcing it as is, uh, as, as it stands. So I think we really have to push our elected officials to stop getting hung up on, you know, well, this particular mass shooting, there was nothing that would have prevented this. Right. Like, 
Yeah. Well, any shooting can't, could have been prevented, and they need to get off their keisters and figure it out. Good points there. Thanks again to our line panel, as always. This week, be sure to let us know what you think about any of the topics and good ones that we covered here on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages. Let's switch over to some environmental news now with our Our Land executive producer, Laura Paskus. Last week, she had a Facebook Live with Carolyn Donnelly of the Bureau of Reclamation to talk about our dams and reservoirs and how we manage that. You may remember about a week ago, we talked to the Mid-Region Council, or no, Middle Rio Grande Conservancy District, sorry, about how uh, they are having massive problems this summer. They expect the Rio Grande uh, to uh, be basically dry in many areas and their water supplies to dry up any time now, which means no release to farmers along the Middle Rio Grande. And part of that has to do with Alvada Dam, which is under construction and not able to store water right now. And so that was the impetus to have this conversation. Uh, again, it is a complex uh, series of uh, facilities, these dams and reservoirs with all sorts of agreements and restrictions. And so it is a puzzle that folks like Carolyn Donnelly have to put together and it gets more complicated all the time with the ongoing drought. And so we wanted to bring that interview to you here on the podcast. We always try to bring you that extra content when we can. If you aren't already, be sure to follow us on Facebook and YouTube, uh, New Mexico in Focus and Our Land, and you'll get notifications whenever we do these lives so you can watch along when they happen. But we are thrilled to be able to bring it to you here as well. So without further ado, here is Our Land executive producer, Laura Paskus. So it is a tough year on the Rio Grande this year again. Um, Rio Grande is drying south of Albuquerque. The middle Rio Grande Conservancy District has said that without significant rains, they're gonna be out of water for farmers pretty soon. So I wanted to talk with Carolyn Donnelly. She's the water operations supervisor for the Albuquerque area office of the US Bureau of Reclamation. Um, Carolyn can help us understand how the Rio Grande and its reservoirs work. Welcome and thanks, Carolyn. Thank you. Well, I was wondering if we could start. Can you just give us like the the big picture overview of the role that reclamation plays on the Rio Grande and specifically the Rio Grande kind of um, the middle Rio Grande and the Chama? Okay, sure. Um, well, I, I guess just as an overview, there's two big water management, federal water management agencies that work in New Mexico and that's the Bureau of Reclamation and the Army Corps of Engineers. Um, and in New Mexico, our operations start on the Rio Chama with Heron Reservoir. That's a reclamation-owned reservoir, and that is actually is not on the Rio Chama. It's just off of it, and it stores the Trans Basin San Juan Chama water. That's New Mexico's share of the Colorado River Compact. Um, and then immediately downstream from that is Elvado Reservoir which is owned and operated by Reclamation, but was originally constructed by the Middle Rio Grande Conservancy District to store um, water supply for irrigation here in the Middle Valley. And then next downstream is Abiquiu Reservoir, which is owned and operated by the Corps of Engineers. And that uh, reservoir now stores San Juan Chama water for municipal use. Um, most of the water there is for the city of Albuquerque. But it started out initially as a flood control reservoir only. And, and the core is, is 
more, their operations for water management tend to be focused on flood control, whereas reclamation is more focused on storing for either irrigation or municipal supply. And then um, after Abiquiu, the Rio Chama flows through um, a bunch of acequias, so small irrigation folks, farms um, below Abiquiu, the, the town of Abiquiu and into Española, and then meets the Rio Grande there. And then downstream from that is Cochiti Reservoir, which probably folks are real familiar with. Um, if you go to Cochiti, you might notice that it doesn't seem to, the water level doesn't seem to fluctuate much unless it's a real big year. And Cochiti again is owned and operated by the Corps and its main purpose is for flood and sediment control, but it does hold a recreation pool of that Transbasin San Juan Chama water. And so that's just for folks to, to get out and boat or swim or whatever things they like to do. And then if we had either large storms or a really big snowmelt runoff, then they might store that water and release it at a safe rate down to the middle valley. And then downstream of that, well downstream is Elephant Butte and Caballo, but those are probably beyond what you wanted to talk about today. So we're gonna talk a little bit more about the reservoirs, but I wanted to kind of like take a little foray into water rights um, because you know, we look out at the Rio Grande or the Rio Chama, the water in the reservoirs, and 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 if I'm if I'm not mistaken, all of that water belongs to someone. Can you can you explain? And I know we all talk about how complicated water rights are, but can you explain how water rights work and 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 whose water that is that we see in the rivers? Sure, Laura. Um, it is complicated. But you're right, the, the water, whether we like it or not, the water, when you're looking at either a reservoir or even what's flowing in the river, it belongs to somebody. Um, this, for example, Heron Reservoir, there are contractors who own the water. And so as we get runoff into Heron, which stopped unfortunately a lot sooner than we had expected this year, um, that'll go into the federal pool. So that hasn't been, given to a contractor yet, but reclamation holds on to it. And then as, as we can, we disperse it to either Albuquerque, Santa Fe, or, or a lot of other communities have some water, Española, Boleyn, um, Middle Rio Grande Conservancy District. Um, and then the releases, when the San Juan Chama project started in the mid 60s, and actually a storage and release didn't start until the 70s, uh, reclamation was tasked with making sure that, that releases of transbasin water would not affect the Rio Grande Compact, so the, the natural flow of the river. And because of that, we've developed a pretty advanced computer model that tracks the water. So when we release water from all the reservoirs, it's got a label on it. It's Albuquerque's water, it's Reclamation's water, it's MRGCD's water, it's somebody's water. Um, and even the natural flow that comes into the Rio Chama or or comes into Cochiti from the main stem Rio Grande. Um, if it's gotten to Cochiti, then when it's released, the Middle Rio Grande Conservancy District has a right to that water. Uh, reclamation is not the one that enforces that. It's it's up to the state to do that. But yeah, everybody, somebody, I should say, owns the water you see out there. Yeah. So so and then when we see water flowing through Albuquerque and downstream. Um, that is also headed to somebody, right? 
Yeah, yeah. So right now, um, like you said, the Middle Rio Grande Conservancy District is doing their best because supply even, even now in mid-June has already been limited. So they're doing their best to make deliveries to all their irrigators. Um, and that means they leave some water in the river through Albuquerque. Um, but for example, um, I don't know, 2018 is a, is a bad hydrologic year that comes to mind. Um, all of the federal agencies that work together as well as um, MRGCD and the Albuquerque Water Authority work together really, really closely and, and great effort was, was extended to um, keep this section of the river flowing through Albuquerque. And it didn't happen because there was natural water there. Mm -hmm. So, um, and looking at conditions right now and kind of an outlook through the rest of the spring and the summer, um, can you give us kind of an overview of that? Sure. Well, as, as best I can, um, it's easier for the snowmelt for people to make predictions about snowmelt than it is rain um, or monsoons. Uh, just the same as, you know, you might get the weather and see a 30% chance of rain and then nothing happens. Um, but we kind of try to base our operations on a more pessimistic um, outlook because that way, if we do get rain and it's better, it, it can extend our operations a little further. Um, but right the, the snowmelt runoff um, went a lot quicker than we expected. And I think that it was a, in large part due to the, the winds that were just, well, they're still going on, maybe not today, but yesterday it was pretty windy. Just relentless winds that um, sublimated. So took a lot of the, the snow from being a frozen to vapor and then took it wherever the wind was blowing and, and, and took it away from us. So runoff just, just went away and quicker than expected. And so, it's um, looking really tough for the rest of this season. Um, as I think uh, MRGCD told you recently, they're gonna be out of any stored water soon. Um, and then they're just gonna be depending on the natural flow of the Rio Chama, which is already down to a very minimal amount. Um, and then also the Rio Grande. So um, as you said, there's already river drying in the Santa Casia reach. So, so in South of Socorro, we expect that there'll be some river drying in the Isleta Reach, kind of in the Boleyn area this week sometime. And this could be the year that we finally do see drying in the Albuquerque Reach, which has not occurred since the early 1980s. Yeah, I just wanted to ask about that briefly because I've heard, you know, reporting on the Rio Grande for a long time, I've heard you know, people say like, oh, I remember the river used to dry in Albuquerque when I was a kid in the 60s and 70s and 80s. But when I look at the hydrograph, I look at the, um, the river flows and upstream reservoir storage, it's my understanding that it's not necessarily because there wasn't water, but because the river was managed differently back then. And that water would oftentimes be diverted for irrigation. Is that is it a management issue? Is it a supply issue? It's probably a little of both. Um, and, and yeah, I, I'm a native and I remember being out there in the early 1980s and seeing the river dry. Um, but, you know, we had some 
bad years. 1977 was comparable to some of the worst years we've had, or the 1950s were, were severely, you know, severe drought. Um, so it's probably a little of both. It was managed differently. And back then, um, folks weren't really concerned about endangered species, and they were just trying to make the irrigation supply last. Um, and, and it's also um, probably a little bit of the, the demand is higher now. So there may not be as many irrigated acres as there was back then, or I maybe, maybe it's similar, but there's certainly uh, more population and more groundwater pumping for, for both the city supply and then those outside the cities who have uh, domestic wells. So supply is higher, I'm sorry, demand is higher. Yeah. And so I know that in the past, um, Reclamation has worked with all kinds of federal and state partners um, uh, to try to, and, and local partners to try to alleviate or mitigate river drying in the Albuquerque reach. What are we looking at for that this summer? Um, as has happened in the past, Reclamation does purchase supplemental water for release so that we can help support the minnow. Um, when when the flows get low, uh, but every year our supply has been diminishing that the amount that's available for us to lease. And so this year, not only is there are there fewer entities, so some of the the municipalities have have gotten other contracts um, for commercial use, maybe or you know other like so Los Lunas I think is some of their water is going to help uh, Facebook and some of those those interests. Um, so there's less out there. And then in addition, the San Juan Chama project is probably going to be shorted. Um, we had initially expected 60 to 70% of a full allocation, but with the runoff dropping off so quickly, um, it's probably going to be closer to 50% of a full allocation. So our supply is very limited. Um, we, we will probably end up with about... 10 to 12,000 acre feet of, um, of supplemental water, which is considerably less than we would have had in a similar year um, 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, everybody's got less. Yeah. And I kind of just wanted to talk about that a little bit more. We were up last week, we went to um, some of the reservoirs on the Chama, and, you know, Elvado is obviously under construction right now. Um, but even Heron is very low, Abiquiu looks low. Um, and I think people kind of look out at those reservoirs and even when we know that we're in drought, even we know it's warmer, I think people still wonder like, why are those reservoirs so low? Is somebody keeping those reservoirs low? And um, it seems to me that it, there just isn't any water to fill them. Am I mistaken on that? No, you're not. That's that's absolutely it. We've been in this drought for at least 20 years, um, and and you know any drought, there are good years, but there are more bad years than good, and and that's what we've seen since about the year 2000. Uh, and and really, the San Juan Chama um, allocations, the allocation for the city of Albuquerque is about what they would use in a in a year. So. Um, Abiquiu, unfortunately, unless we get a, an awful lot of good years in a row like we did in the 1980s and the early 1990s, Abiquiu and, and 
others are, are probably not gonna change too much. I think, um, you know, I can't help but wonder, and I'm sure these conversations are happening all the time, but we've been in this long-term drought um, for so long and we see things like, um, you know, the, the soils are drier, the for everything is drier. You mentioned the wind. Um, what is it, what does it take to recover? Do we recover? What does the future look like? <laughs> I don't <laughs> expound on the future. I'm no, I'm no teller, but I guess I, for whatever reason, I've, I've found myself reading a lot of, um, histories lately. And I, I guess I would say, you know, look back through history and people have had long droughts and they've come out of them. Um, it might not be in my lifetime, I don't know. But, you know, if you ask someone in, I don't know, let's say 1951, you know, is, are we gonna come out of this? They might've said no. And then, and, and it took a while, but by the 1980s, we did get out of it. Um, and, and Elephant Butte actually spilled in, um, I think, 85 and 94. So it's, it's possible, and I have all confidence that it will happen, but I, I don't have a timeline for you. Uh-huh. And so it's so much, it's significantly warmer than it was in the 1950s. And so will we, you know, what are kind of the ways that, and I know that reclamation is, is involved in lots of these conversations, um, but like, how does warming figure into our planning for the future? Um, we, well, you know, so much of our infrastructure is built for snowmelt um, to capture that. It's, it's more difficult to catch high peaks, which is what uh, monsoons and, and rainstorms would bring. Um, Elephant Butte is actually well situated to capture that kind of, of rainstorms. Um, and in 2006, which was a really fantastic monsoon year, um, it, it captured a lot of water and it really helped New Mexico um, exceed what, was, what it was due to deliver to Elephant Butte under the Rio Grande Compact. So, so those are some that are lower in the uh, watershed and can capture that, that water. Um, what we do in water ops, you know, we're looking at this year and how do we deal with what's out there this year? And, and even though I, I'm gonna you know, say to you, we're in a long-term drought, that doesn't mean that next year may not be like 2019 in which we had really fantastic runoff. So my, my perspective is more what's going on now and what do we expect this year? But others in reclamation are looking at, at things we could change um, for those reasons. And we'll point people toward um, the interview we did with Dagmar um, yeah. last year, I think it was. Um, so I just wanted to touch briefly on Elvado. Um, if you could kind of just give the lowdown on what's happening in the timeframe at Elvado. And I, I wanted to also ask, there aren't any other big construction projects no. going on right now, right? No, just Elvado, yeah. So um, Elvado was, we were retaining water there uh, this year a little bit for um, to meet the needs of the prior and paramount lands that within the six middle Rio Grande Pueblos. And then when the Corps of Engineers granted a deviation from their normal operations, 
we move that water to Abiquiu, which is not under construction. It's operating normally right now. And Elvado was then brought down to a small pool that will remain there um, throughout this first period of construction. There's two, uh, two phases planned. The first phase is to, is to rehabilitate the dam or what we're calling the embankment, which is the steel face plates. And I believe that the contractor now is grouting. They, they, so we've lowered the reservoir, some holes, and then they're putting grout in there to make sure things are stable. And then they're gonna put um, a geo membrane over the face plate and, and that'll be the, the first phase, the embankment construction. And that is expected to last through the end of next year, 2023. And then um, after that, in the spring of 2024, they're gonna begin repairing, or I should say rebuilding the spillway and that they're gonna build a concrete spillway. It's now, again, the same steel faceplate similar to the, the uh, embankment. And that is scheduled to last, I believe, three years. But during that time, Elvada will be able to store approximately one year's worth of, of supplemental supply for MRGCD. Okay. Um, so any final words about this year and what people should expect or maybe some misperceptions um, or things you'd like people to better understand about this year? Um, it's a tough year. so. We're doing the all of us, the, the Conservancy District, the Corps, the state of New Mexico, everybody's doing the best they can to meet multiple goals. Um, we, we try, well, it, I guess, I was gonna say, we try to, to uh, allow recreational flows on the Rio Chama for rafters. Um, right now, we're not doing that mostly for the sole reason is that the forest is closed. So there's no access for the recreation. Um, but we work really hard to meet multiple goals if we can, but folks still need to remember that the primary purpose of the water is to meet whatever the user does with the water, whether they irrigate, whether it's uh, one of the cities that diverts it and then treats it and, and delivers it to your house. Um, that's the primary purpose. And, and while we try to meet recreational targets and, and allow folks to recreate on our facilities or on the flows, we have to, at legally, we have to meet the initial, the primary purpose of the water. So that's that's all I'd say. Right, well, thanks, Carolyn. I appreciate you walking me through some of these um, issues that we all know are complicated, but affect everyone's lives. Yes, they do. Thank you, Laura. I hope you can continue to bring understanding to folks. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for this episode of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Just want to take a quick minute out for a personal note. This is my last week at New Mexico PBS. It has been almost 16 years to the day that I started here. I have loved every minute of it. Uh, the work we do here is important. I hope you find it important in terms of educating and informing you on the important issues of the day. The good news is there's a great team here still that will continue doing exactly that. Senior producer Lou DeVizio, of course, Laura Paskus, Gene Grant, our great team of contributors and correspondents. Uh, but it has uh, come time for a change for me. Uh, hopefully I will pop back up in your world somewhere again down the line. But for now, new adventures 
Thank you all for the support over the years and for listening and watching everything we do on New Mexico in Focus. Really appreciate it. And uh, again, hopefully we'll talk to you down the road. But until then, stay safe, stay healthy. Thanks for listening.